0: This is Cold War Conversations. If you're new here, you've come to the right place to listen to first-hand Cold War history accounts. Do make sure you follow us in your podcast app or join our emailing list at coldwarconversations.com. In February 1983, U.S. soldier Manuel Alsaga was sent to a mysterious posting in the British zone in the north of West Germany, a long way away from the main U.S. forces in southern Germany. After a lengthy journey, he's picked up by a German private and eventually arrives at the 81st U.S. Army Field Artillery Detachment, where his mission is to guard, assemble and deliver low-yield nuclear artillery rounds to the West German Army. He describes how the rounds were assembled, as well as the orders in the event of unauthorised intruders, and much more. Being stationed in the British zone, Manuel also tells us about the love-hate relationship with the British, where they would fight, make up, drink, and fight again. You can catch up with Manuel's two other episodes with me via the links in the episode information. I'm delighted to welcome Manuel to our Cold War conversation. Um, So you go back to uh, Fort Riley, but then you get offered a... Well, um, you weren't offered, you were given orders to return back to Germany.
1: We got back sometime mid-October, 82, and we got a few days off, and that was nice. And then we went back to our daily routine, which is basically, you know, you get up, you do PT in the morning, you go to chow, you have inspection, you have training for the day, or you go to the motor pool, work on your vehicles. And I remember being called out to the the BC's office, the battery commander, and it's like, oh, man, what'd I do? (laughs) Mm. And uh, I reported sir specials are reporting his order Addie's, well you're going back to germany oh no he said did you like germany i know you did <laughs> he told me that because i did and i said yes sir absolutely so well guess what you're going back and i'm like yeah and he had me my orders i had like i think it was a four month notice so he used to give you four months or more if you were married it'd give you more of a uh advance notice. But I was single and enlisted and lower rank. So, you know, I think it was like three or four months and then you, you ship out. So it must have been around Super Bowl time of nineteen eighty three that I I went home on leave for about two to three weeks. And then I flew via commercial airlines from Los Angeles to St. Louis and then they told me in St. Louis When I showed them my orders, they had to be in uniform, and they got really mad. And I'm like, what? Yeah, true. you better go back. So I had to dig out my backpack, my duffel bag, and I put on my uniform. And then it was a chartered uh, commercial flight from St. Louis to Philadelphia to ride mine again, or somewhere in Frankfurt. And then we were bused, and this was all individual soldiers with orders. And I got back to run mine probably in February or March of 83. And this time I was going to be assigned there. You know, and back in those days, it was at least a, a two-year tour, I think. 18 months to two years if you were single private. Um, and I was fine with that. So I got there, went through the whole process. Uh, they, they asked me one day if I had any problems working with nukes. And this is a 21st replacement detachment in Frankfurt. And I'm like, no. Okay. So maybe a little bit later, they they, gave me, they cut me my orders. and said, you're going up north.
0: That, that question, you know, have you got any problem working with nukes? Were, were they asking whether you had any problems ideologically there? Or, or what, uh, what, what was I that remember, question?
1: Okay, uh, let me see if I remember. I think it was more like if I had any kind of philosophical disagreements with the use of nuclear weapons or nuclear energy at the time because, you know, that was a big thing in America. No nukes. We don't want nuclear energy. That's wrong. I didn't care. I was 19 or 20 by now, and I didn't care. And I said, no. Uh, But it didn't make sense to me. Until they gave me martyrs and said uh, that I was going to go up north and I was going to be assigned to a, a nuclear unit.
0: Yeah, it's just, a, and, a, and, it was an interesting question because, you know, the impression yeah. I get, I've, I've never been in the army, as you can tell, um, but I would have no idea.
1: You know more about it than I do. Well, <laughs>
0: <laughs> I just read rather dull books a lot. I, I, the impression I get is in the army, you're just told where to go, you don't question it and you're not offered an option, it's sort of like, we need you to go to this place and do this job. So that's why I'm surprised about being asked whether you had an objection to nuclear weapons. But I think you've explained it well, that there was a lot of noise at that time, both in yeah. Europe and in the US, about nuclear energy, because it was Three Mile Island, wasn't it, during the 80s? Right. Or
1: and then I think tell me time the Persians being deployed.
0: Yeah, and crews in the UK... As right, well. right. I think I think when when you you were letting me know before you you are you're taken to uh, Frankfurt train station, aren't you?
1: It was a ship out date, and we had a formation, a muster, and then you know, cementio is calling out your name, checking your orders. she will say, "Get on that bus," or "Get on that jeep," or "Wait right here," and they're all mentioning places that have the units, and they're being picked up, and they're moving on. And they called my name, and it was an E-7, a big, big guy. And he said, are, are you all Zika? And I'm, I don't have the balls to, to correct him. You know, my last name is al But I said, uh, yes, Sergeant. You wait right here. Yes, Sergeant. So I'm waiting right there, I don't know, maybe 20 minutes. And he said, well, we're taking you to the train station. Your unit's up north. There's no one here to come get you. <laughs> I'm like, what? It's like, okay. So I, it was a little bad, just, you know, some private. Get on. We're going to train station, you know, smoking cigarettes, smoking and joking. And he says, good luck. I said, okay, thank you. So here I am, maybe 19 or 20 years old in Frankfurt Station, train station. Puzzle and bustle. I mean, you hear all kinds of languages. You see a lot of military people. So, And there were signs everywhere at the time. You know, U.S. military personnel, report, blah, blah, blah. So I go to this little, like, office, and I show my orders. And and they were, I think, also operated by, by German civilians. They were very nice. Mm-hmm. Oh, would you like some coffee? Would you like a donut? Well, you get on track so-and-so, and your training is at this time. And don't forget to set your watch. We're on such and such a time. I said, okay. So I got on the train, never been on a train in my life, not even in California. And the train is, this is maybe in the afternoon, is going up north. And I'll remember seeing Mepin train station. And I didn't have a map and I couldn't Google it, obviously, or use Google Earth. So cool, cool. Uh, But I just remember standing up. And smoking a cigarette and looking out the windows and just seeing like the Rhine River and the castles. I remember going through a bunch of little villages and stopping and you know people boarding and most of them very nice. And it was starting to get late, and I was still on that train. And then I realized, like, God, I'm the only American on here, and that was pretty much the case. But it didn't dawn on me until maybe five or six hours later. And then I remember clearly writing down where else to get off. So I got off in a a little village called Meppen, M-E-P-P-E-N, which is way up north, close probably to the Dutch border. And I got off, and I'm already thinking, okay, there's signs here that must say U.S. personnel call this number, like all the big bases do, even back in those days. And I'm literally there by myself, and it's cold. And I guess it just snowed. And I didn't have anybody to call. They didn't give me any numbers, nothing. And the train station was closed at the time. I remember there was like, it was at like 10 p.m., the bond house closed, but there was, you know, a to still ride back and forth, collect mm-hmm. like the concessions, the ticket office closed. And, and I'm starting to get nervous. You know, I'm sitting there, I don't know who to call. Even if I did, I mean, I have, <laughs> I don't know how to use those payphones over there. <laughs> So maybe, maybe an hour later, uh, this gray, funny-looking vehicle, uh, they were called Safaris uh, in America, made by Volkswagen back in the 70s, early 80s. Well, it's gray, and it's got the the Bundeswehr logo, and a guy with a red beret comes out (laughs) in broken English. Starts saying, you know, and I'm like, what? i understood just a bit, uh, <laughs> and he said, "You American soldier must come with me." I'm like, no, I'm American. I'm waiting for the American chief. And he's going nine nine nine. It's been that long for a day. He's saying, you know, I'm here to pick you up. I'm your driver, mm. and <laughs> and well, I have no choice. So <laughs> I said, okay, okay, y'all hold. I threw my duffel bag in the back and. You know, I offered him a cigarette, and I was hoping, you know, I wasn't very religious at the time, but I'm praying I'm going to the right place, or I'm not going to get in trouble. I don't want to be kind of AWOL. That was my biggest fear, if I was AWOL. So, you know, he starts talking, yeah, yeah, you come with us. We have American soldiers. So I started feeling at ease, and it's, I think, late at night. uh, Beautiful countryside too, you know, the reflection of the moon on the rivers. Like I said, I just fell in love with Germany right away and the people and the culture and the food. Uh, and maybe about two hours later, we got to a little town. We passed a lot of towns on the way, and we got to a place called Duhlman, which was, is in um, the British sector at the time. It was just mm-hmm. west of Munster and north of Essen, uh, part of the British Corps, North Ag, Northern Army Group. And we passed a British base, but I was going maybe 15 kilometers down the road to the German base. And it was a German army base, Santa Barbara Concern, St. Saint, saint Barbara, the patron saint of artillery. I didn't know it at the time.
0: I didn't even know artillery had a patron saint, to be fair. but
1: <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so they took my ID, and I saw the American flag there, so I felt more at ease. And they had a German flag that no, it was clear the West German flag at the time. And then we go down the base, make a few turns, and i see an American flag. I think they were taking it down or, or it was lit up or something, but I saw an American flag and I felt happy. And uh, I got to what was called uh, the 81st USUFAD, United States Fuel Artillery Detachment. And I wasn't too sure what was going on? I thought there was a mistake and so the following morning. I mean, they fed me chow, and uh, I bunked down like in the day room because there wasn't a room for me. I came in so late, but the following morning, you know, the first sergeant greeted me. It was very nice, very casual, actually. He told me our, what our mission was—that we were supposed to assemble, safeguard, and deliver low-yield nuclear rounds to the German Army. And I believe it was the 5th or the 7th German Army Artillery Regiment. I have the little emblem in uh, my memory box, but I, I can't remember the nomenclature of the unit. And uh, that was our job. And when we weren't doing that, we were to guard the nukes downrange. And so we had a site away from the base, and it's those old, uh, it looks like a dirt mound basically, with a big steel metal doors and that's where the rounds were kept and they were, and you know what? I can't remember all the details, even if I wanted to, cause it was all secret at the time, but that was our mission. And, uh, I'm like, Oh, well, that's why they asked me that question. So, uh, there I was in Germany for the second time and, uh, it wasn't what I expected. I thought I was going to go to a regular line unit, you know, with, uh, an American battalion or division. I've made the mistake, or maybe not the mistake, looking back, uh, of saying, no, I don't care, I'll work with
0: nukes. (laughs) Well, this is an an unusual role. And when when you say assemble, I'm imagining that a regular artillery round has explosive in it, so a nuclear Mm -hmm. artillery round has to be put together differently?
1: Yes, exactly. A conventional artillery round is pretty much already packed and made for you. All you got to put, take the cardboard and the wood packings off of it, take off the cap, like with an Allen wrench, and screw on the fuse and set the fuse to whatever time or designation that needs to go off on. Yeah. And then you put a fuse bag and you cut it, put it behind there, and you're done. But what I came to find out was nuclear artillery rounds, at least low-yields. Nuclear artillery rounds uh, came in different pieces. And I, I was trying to remember the other day, and maybe the FBI is going to show up my door tomorrow or something. But for the life of me, I can't remember. It, it, it was in parts, and they were boxed separately, like these big, ugly metal containers. And there was a humidifier in there, and they read you the temperature, and they were sealed. And there was a process. It was called uh, tech ops, technical operations, where basically you did everything by the book with somebody there with you at all times. And it was like a two-man check to double-check you. You double-check him, vice versa. And if I recall, the pieces were housed in different bunkers. And then when we simulated, because we never actually built the live rounds, Nuclear round. When I was there, I left there in 85. Um, we would simulate, but we did get to actually see them and we did work with them. We had to actually check the temperatures and make sure everything was locked up and sealed. We had to do uh, maintenance checks on them. And there were these big, ugly, olive drab containers and they were housed separately, like maybe they're in three or four pieces and then the fuse. And then once it was built, it was an office was come by and sign it over to the German. Officer, and then they they pop one off over the border, maybe. But that was the process. And it, 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 the tech ops again, Ian. Please accept my apologies. I don't remember.
0: No, <laughs> but, and I and I absolutely appreciate that. I mean, I'm I'm asking <laughs> for a stupid level of data. It's just that I'm I'm fascinated because I'd I'd heard of nuclear artillery rounds, but yeah, yeah. I don't we I don't them. know what they we are. I don't know how they, you know. Uh, how, How how they They, work or or differ. Obviously, there's a bigger bang and a lot more damage, but you know. Yeah,
1: most of our days were training on them or doing maintenance in and around them, in addition to, you know, like the regular infantry type training because we're supposed to guard them. So the emphasis was also on infantry training, marksmanship and stuff. But I recall they came in different uh, containers, and there was a very specific process of how to build it and how to check it. And uh, there was no room for error. There was somebody always there, even if it was a practice, uh, you know, and there was a very clear procedure set in place for the release of the nuclear round. And, you know, again, I'm a little older now. Maybe I'm an I'm a specialist by now. So I'm a little more in tune to what's going on, a little more experienced. But I also remember this, and we were going to use nuclear low-yield rounds first in the event Warsaw Pact came across the Folded Gaff or the Northern Plains. Uh, that was our focus. There. The Northern Plains are on Hanover, mm. uh, just for flatland. And there was no bones about that. Uh, we all, we're all always told that. It's like, we're going to be overrun. We will be using nukes first. And I don't know if that's uh, news to anybody or... Um, in contradiction of, of protocol. But the way I think our mentality was, by the time we react to uh, to an invasion, you know, there's going to be a lot of people dead already. And the reforger, that takes 12, 18 hours, so at least get you from your bases in America to the actual battlefield in Germany. And I remember that being made very clear that we would be the first to use, if we had to, to stop an invasion. So that was a sombering feeling that, uh, you know, we would be doing that. But, you know, we trained on that and at the, at the same time, technology was also changing. Uh, they were talking about, well, these are out of date, you know, we have the Pershings coming in, we have all this other stuff uh, being in the works, but, you know, you still had to train on it. And if there's going to be some kind of transition, you know, that would train us on that. But it was all very primitive, looking back, all that equipment. Even the communication was very primitive. So that's what I recall about nuclear artillery pieces. They were there. We had them in country. And people knew it.
0: And this was the 155mm shell?
1: Yes. 155, Dam 109. It was that artillery piece. And also... The bigger one, the 8-inch for the M110. And the Germans had the same artillery pieces. They had better tanks, I thought. That's a different discussion. Because I heard some of your uh, your um, podcasts on armor, which I find fascinating. But in terms of artillery, the German, the Bundeswehr, they had the same ones we did. They had the M110 and the M109. And uh, they, they were interchangeable. So I think that was also part of the plan, you know, we can interchange equipment and uh, ammunition if we had to.
0: I've just done a quick search on the internet, which is not always a good thing. Um, And it it looks like the the yield on them was around one kiloton. Um, I don't remember. (laughs) No, 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 don't worry about that. And and also (laughs) there there was a, a mode where it could be used with enhanced radiation, which was popularly known as the neutron bomb. Yeah, yeah as well so don't don't worry i know it's a, a long time back you you were saying to me that everybody around there knew that you had nuclear weapons in that base oh yeah
1: oh yeah in fact um like i was saying i was in a, a village a little town called Dulmen, and the british were i think on the east side with their camp and we were in the german concern and then, downrange, maybe twenty kilometers in a beautiful deep forest was the actual um uh, storage bunkers, so we would commute back and forth like on twenty four hour shifts uh to guard those nukes with the Germans. We were internal, and the Germans were there basically in charge, if you will, but we were there to to monitor them and to go back to your question, we sat protests outside the gates, and it was really funny because, you know, me and my buddies, we would know some of these people from the pubs and the gas houses, and we'd wave at each other, hey, you know, and then we'd go downtown because we had a lot of free time when I was there, mm. and I remember people asking us, like, what's down there, and we were supposed to say nothing, and I remember one time getting drunk, <laughs> And saying to somebody who we thought was a spy, we didn't know. I mean, we didn't know the guy. We said, yeah, we have 500 Fallsheim springers in the And I said, we have 400 airborne rangers stationed there, ready to go. And that was the farthest thing from the truth. And he took it seriously. So me and my buddy, we reported that. You know, we called that little number. We told our first sergeant, you know, It's like, oh, this guy, and stupid Alzagas told them that we had 400, and he was lying. <laughs> and first I said, well, at least he told a good lie, because that's the farthest thing from the truth. But, but yeah, they knew it was out there. How? Who knows? Uh, we were tight-lipped about it. But uh, they, they knew we had nukes. Here. They didn't know probably exactly which kind. I'm thinking they did the math. There's an artillery unit here. There's a bunker downrange. Go figure. Yeah. But then you know, we had something, and and I remember getting protests, and we had to go, you know, on extra guard duty because the Pershings were coming in, not to our location. We had no idea where they were going, but mm-hmm. you know there were protests out there that we had Pershings, and we were to say nothing.
0: Yeah,
1: but luckily um, I didn't get written up for being a dumbass, but uh, but you know it was like the worst kept secret in that town that we, there was nukes there. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, it was probably it's it unusual to have a US artillery detachment so far away from the rest of the US army as well.
1: <laughs> right. And there was maybe 30 of us uh Americans and and like I said the Bundeswehr treated us really good. You know, I still keep in yeah. touch with a couple of those guys via Facebook, which is kind of cool, but you know, we reminisce. <laughs>
0: I'm I'm looking for some Bundeswehr people to interview, so uh
1: You know, I can probably put you in touch with a buddy of mine.
0: I'd be uh, interested in in, uh, doing that. You said you were on guard duty. I mean, what were your instructions as far as if you had intruders? Right.
1: There was different perimeters uh, that were set up to guard nukes. Uh, We were in the internal perimeter, which means we had the keys and access to the actual bunkers. No one else did. And that was, I think it was called perimeter A or inner perimeter. And there was a middle perimeter, which is like two fences. And the, the Bundeswehr troops would walk that. And they'd stay within the fences. And then the polici, and they weren't there, but the plan was if something did go down, and it did, the police would be called, they'd be on the outside of the fence. Our Our mission was basically if anybody came in, that had no authorization. We had names of all the German soldiers. And it had—it was like this old revolving door system that you had to open and close electronically. And if anybody was in there, we were supposed to shoot to kill. And we did have live ammunition for that. In fact, we we do the ammo count, like every morning when you switched over or when you were relieved of duty, <laughs> we did have live ammunition. And the Germans had their... I think it was a G3 rifle, beautiful rifle. Uh, and we had the M16 Alpha 2. We also had the M203 grenade launcher. But the, it was very clear, and it was all well lit. And if someone was supposed to go in the perimeter, the German was supposed to let us know first, like, you know, some maintenance or maintenance workers. There were civilian maintenance workers that would come in from the day and do the plumbing and mow the lawns. It was really wild. And, uh, but that happened just the daytime. But then when we'd stand down, that means nobody went in there, only American troops. We'd have to go there like, oh God, I don't know what it was. Every 30 minutes, two of us would have to put on our flak, our, uh, our flak vests and our helmets and live ammo on safety. And we'd have to check the doors and check the perimeter. Every hour or 30 minutes, something like that. So we did it in shifts and I think there was maybe three or four of us, It was an NCO in charge who did the radios, telephones, and had access to all the doors, and then we would do, we'd check, we'd do the rounds, basically. Check the rounds on the rounds. And our, our mission was very clear. If anybody was in there, we were supposed to shoot them. But of course, then they would say, well, you have to communicate, and it was a very clear protocol with the Bundeswehr. Like, you know, we're going to have three troops, here's our IDs, they're going to go in there and they're going to rake leaves, or they're going to do some maintenance on the side of the bunker, but we would have to go with them. So it was always like, uh, if someone was out there alone, we we're to shoot them. And the funny thing was, well, maybe not funny then, but there was a lot of wild rabbits <laughs> and they'd pop up their little heads and run around and you freak out if you want to shoot them. But you know, the sergeant who had more experience say, you know, relax, relax, relax private, got under control. If it don't belong to it, don't grow, you shoot it. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, that was pretty clear. And there was also this plan that if we were under an actual attack and it was not a simulation, we we're supposed to call you know, the, the tower. And they were supposed to dispatch like an elite unit. I don't know if this is true or not, but they were supposed to come in and parachute in and save the day. I don't know if that was true. Maybe the Bundeswehr guys could tell you more about that, but you know, <laughs> I thought it was fascinating. I never saw that, but I thought it was yeah. a cool concept. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, our mission was pretty simple. Uh, if you're not building it, you guard it. And if someone doesn't belong in there, you shoot, but then it got more political. Well, if you shoot, you got to have a password. One of them civilian clothing while well, you shoot, but then you ask for a password. And, and, you know, uh, Luckily, we didn't have anyone breach the perimeter. We just had protesters outside, and they were pretty friendly for the most part. Maybe a few through rocks, I don't know. But we never had our perimeter breached while I was there, so uh, we didn't have to shoot anybody.
0: That's good. So uh, how did you get on with your uh, British friends up the road?
1: <laughs> wow, that was a love-hate relationship again. When I got there, there was always tension. Uh, and not tension at the level of the government or the higher ranks of the officers. But here's what would happen. We'd go to the pubs and the discos and we'd fight over girls. And, you know, that, that was always an ongoing thing. And it was kind of funny because looking back, you know, after we fought, we'd have a beer or Oh, Mike, here, have a faggot. And let me buy you the next round or vice versa. And, and we would fight over stupid things especially girls or frauleys, you know, they they would just mess us all up. Uh, in, in terms of like actual, I hate you kind of thing, that did not happen. But there was a lot of little pay fights. And then the, you know, the British police would be called on us. And we didn't have any MPs up there. So we kind of thought we had it made until we met like the Royal Police. I don't know what they were called. But, yeah, you know, royal, they,
0: they, the Royal <laughs> Military Police. Yeah, right well,
1: they, they, they would show us no pity. You know, they'd whack us upside the head and take us to our first sergeant, and that's all there was to it. They wouldn't throw us in jail or anything. But it was more of a love hate, stupid little thing. And we try to do things. Uh, our battery commander, our, our battery commander, he was a uh, captain. I forgot his name. But he married a, an English girl. Whose father was an officer down the road at, at that concern, at the base, the British base. So he was always trying to smooth things over. Like we'd have a soccer game and then have a, a beer call. And those things were fun, you know. It was just the stupid privates sit fight over girls. That was really it. I remember we would bash each other, either just intentionally or just for fun. Uh, but sometimes, you know, we would fight over stupid things. Uh, we would say things that were very inappropriate about the Queen, and they would say things very inappropriate about you know, Reagan or our moms. <laughs> so hence, a fight would break out. Okay. And, and then it had, to, here's the funny thing, Ian, it would have to be fast or outside because if the I was called, then you were really in deep. We usually find the bathrooms or outside and it, the following day, you know, if you went downtown and you saw the guy, you'd have said nothing or or, you know, you got on with it. And, and again, I'm a big heavy metal fan, so I'd always be talking to to the, to the British troops about metal. And, well, I don't listen to that, mate. And I thought, well, all English people have to listen to heavy metal. You know, Judas Priest and Black Sabbath, they're all from, you know, UFO. They're all from England. So I found a few core friends. And it was funny because some of them were back in the Falklands, and I would have those discussions with them. But I, I, liked, I always made that connection with the British troops like, you know, the metal bands. And then we'd go to Dortmund to go see uh, Iron Maiden and have a beer and then get back on the train. Uh, There was one guy, I forgot his name, but we became pretty good friends and he wrote for me for many years, hopefully as well and alive and happy. But uh, it was more angst of youth and... You know,
0: hormones rage in. And, and, I, and I admit,
1: those, those, those fraud lines, they used to play us, you know.
0: So. Yeah. Well, I don't think that's changed down the years, to be honest. I mean, <laughs> you know, that, 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 that's uh, classic military history, I would say. Um, Hello, I'm Craig Donald from Aberdeen, and I support Cold War conversations with a monthly donation because it marries interesting historical content with fantastic storytelling. Ian is a great gift as an interviewer. He knows his subjects so that the conversations are meaningful, but he also allows guests to tell their own story. Cold War Conversations is part of my weekly routine, and I would urge you to make it part of yours. Want to be like Craig and help to preserve these incredible stories of the Cold War? As a monthly or annual supporter, you'll be able to listen ad-free. You'll become one of our community, get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate to find out more or follow the link in the episode information. So um, I think you, you left Germany in 1985. What happened with the rest of your military service?
1: Again, maybe about four or five months uh... Before you leave, you get orders. So I got orders to leave. Oh, God, I'm trying to remember. It was in 85. I remember that. And the only reason I remember that, Ian, is because Live Aid was happening. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it was a big thing yeah, at the time yeah. on MTV. And that's how I, I kind of do my timelines in my life is what was happening in music. So I, I left Germany. It was, had to have been the spring and the summer of 85. And again, I went home on leave for a little bit. And then I was assigned to Fort Bragg, North Carolina, uh, where I got to work with another type of unit, which was, again, a blessing looking back because I had different experiences. I was assigned to the 18th Airborne Corps Artillery. It was Alpha Battery. I believe it was 5th of the 8th Artillery or 8th of the 5th, something like that. And um, we were a 1-9 or 8 towed unit which means we had the big towed guns uh, that would be either airlifted by Chinook helicopters or on the back of a, um, not a deuce half, I think they were too small. It was a bigger truck after that. I forgot maybe the four-ton if that existed. And our mission was to support the 82nd Airborne and whatever it is they did. And I remember when I got my orders, everyone said, oh, you're going Airborne, you're going Airborne. It's like, no, I'm not. Well, at first, I was like, oh, yeah, yeah. And as it, it, came, it came close, I was like, I don't want to jump out of airplanes. That's crazy. So I was relieved that when I got there, you know, they didn't ask me any questions. They just said, this is your unit. Here you go. It wasn't like when I got to Germany and I was in a, quote, leg unit at Fort Bragg, which means you were not airborne. Mm-hmm. You were looked down upon. And I didn't know that rivalry existed until I got there. But it was fun because we had the big one nine or eight and if the eighty second uh did something, we were we had a rotation of all the artillery units and we we're supposed to back them up, whether it be an exercise or an actual deployment. Uh one time we were on a two week alert, they we said those rotations. You'd have to have everything packed ready to go with, and within that two week frame, no leaves were allowed. You couldn't leave base, and if you did, it couldn't be that far unless you lived off base and you were married. But we got deployed uh, to Florida. No, wait, to to Fort Jackson, South Carolina uh, for exercise. But we never knew, and it was more real there. You actually got issued the live ammunition, and um, you actually flew somewhere. And half the time, you didn't know where you were going which I thought, looking back, was kind of fun. Now I'm petrified. <laughs> but yeah. uh, like, we'd wind up at Fort Jackson one morning, and we'd do live fire to support, I don't know, the, the 325th Infantry from the 82nd Airborne. And we had the big guns. They had the little towed guns. I think they were called 105s, and we had the 109/8s, which is basically a 155 um, artillery round projectile. It's kind of the same with the M109. I hope I'm not losing you.
0: No, you'd, I'm, I'm still there, just about.
1: Okay, so basically the 108 is a towed version of the M109 self propelled gun. And our mission was a big guns to support them. And, you know, it was fun because you would actually deploy somewhere with the rounds, live rounds, live ammo, everything, to Fort Jackson. Uh, we went to somewhere in the desert in California one time. And there was always rumors, oh, we were going to... I don't know, to Cuba or something. But obviously none of that came true. Uh, and I, I was there till I think it was 87. I enlisted for six years and I was going to re-enlist, but number one, I wanted to go to college. And I never had even thought about that opportunity till I was you know, going to re-enlist. And they said, well, you yeah, have this much money saved if you want to go to college. I'm like, really? So I got out of active service in 1987, I think it was, and I went back to the Los Angeles area. And uh, I started college, at Riverside City College, and I was also in uh, the California National Guard, which is another story within itself, but every month we'd go up to a place called Camp Roberts and do live fire missions, which is great. You know, they had the money for that back in those days. So I did that. And then I got out of the National Guard in 1992. And by that time, personally, I was done with the military. I wanted to grow my hair out. I wanted to be a teacher. You know, I had like viva la Lassa kind of mentality going in my head. I got married. I got offered a teaching job. And so for many years, I taught special education. And then I moved to Albuquerque. And then I started teaching and going to school. So the military was good for me. I got to go to school. I got deg- three degrees for free, basically. Um, you know, um, my hearing is off. I'm fighting with the VA about that. But uh, for me, it was a good thing. And I, I miss the camaraderie. I miss uh, just the no-excuse kind of attitude. It's like, you know, we're going to get this done in the story. Yeah, and, and let's do it and, and I still keep in touch with uh, some of the old guys I knew via Facebook and so forth but I, I do miss it you know um, but then life goes on I I just didn't want to keep moving around a lot I guess it's one of the main things I got out it's like I want to settle down somewhere yeah you never know where married. you would
0: be at any point in time really do you when you're in the military
1: Right, And, you know, some people got married and made a career out of it and they moved with their wives and that was great, but I didn't have that opportunity. Uh, but again, I have no regrets. Uh, well, maybe thank you. I should have maybe gone the officer route uh, looking back because, um, well, I love the military and I had more of an interest in it as I got older. But outside of that, I, I loved my time in the military. I had a great time. It was good to me. It was good to me. Especially as a, son of a a mexican immigrant
0: yeah don't miss the episode extras such as videos photos and other content just look for the link in the podcast information the podcast wouldn't exist without the generous support of our financial supporters and i'd like to thank one and all of them for keeping the podcast on the road the cold war conversation continues in our facebook discussion group Just search for Cold War Conversations in Facebook. Thanks very much for listening and see you next week.